Hey, I'm Candace Robinson. I'm, I'm the author of Clouded by Envy, The Bone Valley, and 10 Fairies of Oz. And you're listening to HP Lovecast podcast. Welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, our auxiliary monthly podcast. In each episode, we present on a discussion of a story as an addendum to our HP Lovecast or a discussion of an independently selected story. We may also interview creators, creators such as writers or artists in the horror and or horror fantasy genres. I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on the horror and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of peplum films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited horror literature from gothic to postmodern, also from McFarland. For today's episode, we'll be talking about the 1959 Italian sci-fi horror film Cal Tiki, the Immortal Monster. So let's start with the plot. Deep in the jungles of Mexico, an archaeological expedition happens upon a Mayan temple recently unearthed due to an erupting volcano. One of the archaeologists, Nito, witnesses something so horrible he goes insane and runs back to base camp. The rest of the team, led by biologist Dr. Fielding, go to investigate what happened. They stumble upon Kaltiki, the immortal monster, a large amorphous blob monster that eats one of the team members and devours Gunther's, who is Fielding's scientist's friend, who Max Gunther loathes Dr. Fielding and wants his wife Ellen to himself. Did you guys get that? Anyway, Kaltiki devours his arm, <laughs> infecting him with poison in the process. The team flees while Dr. Fielding crashes a truck full of handy flammable chemicals into Kaltiki, killing it. The piece of Kaltiki stuck to Gunther is pulled off and studied. It's millions of years old, and it grows with radiation. Eventually, Max Gunther does go insane from his injuries and escapes from the hospital in order to make Helen Ellen his. He gets eaten by Kaltiki. At the same time, a comet is passing overhead, dousing the world in radiation that causes all the sectioned-off pieces of Kaltiki to grow and multiply. Dr. Fielding and the army race to Fielding's house to save his wife, his kid, and, nay, the entire world, by flamethrowering Kaltiki, the immortal monster. Michelle! <laughs> what are your general impressions of Kaltiki, the immortal monster? Well, um, <laughs> I felt that it displayed some uh, interesting cinematography expertise and innovativeness. Uh, particularly the found footage scene. But overall, I felt that it just lacked the charm of, of other successful sci-fi invasion films of its era. How about you? This movie has everything in it that I should love. It's got tiki exotica elements. It's got Lovecraftian elements, hence why we're talking about it. 
and, and it's Italian genre films. I mean, that's what I study. That's what I went to school for. I did my thesis on Margaretti. I was knee-deep in peplum films and uh, Eurospy films and the Italian horror and sci-fi films. And, you know, I hadn't watched this film before, but, you know, it was always on the radar. And so all these elements together should have been like, oh, my God, this is going to be the greatest thing I've ever seen. And I've watched this movie three times up to this point now, you know, twice for this podcast and once when our friend Sean loaned us the movie. And every successive time I've watched it, it gets worse and worse and more disappointing. I I, I now realize those folks out there when their favorite movie gets a ad- uh, favorite book gets adapted to a movie like Aragon or something, they're like, oh my god, I can't wait to watch it, and they walk out of that theater tail tucked between legs. That's the t- most terrible thing I've seen. That's how I feel about Kaltiki. It's something I should love, and it's just the the blemishes are so you can't overlook them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think with that, um, maybe we should talk about what's crappy about it, yeah. and then we'll end on positive notes. <laughs> yeah, let, let's. We're, we're going to do this podcast episode a little differently. We're going to talk about the Lovecraft stuff at the end, uh, like a band aid. We're going to do this short and sweet, and get the bad stuff done first because we we like the texts generally that we we navigate and talk about for this podcast and in all of our studies. We're not here to really harp on anything because by sure virtue of existing, you know, this movie has something to say. And we do want to get to that, but we we can't just put our heads in the sand on the the glaring uh, (laughs) faults of this film, of which... There are quite a few. So, so Michelle, let's start with you. What's what's like the most glaring uh, issue with this film? No character development. The, uh, I would say that dude, the characters are terrible. They they are, and it, and it's twofold, uh, really. Uh, first, the the characters are are two dimensional. They're basically cutouts of you know all the typical tropes you've got. Um, your main hero who really is like not really a hero Um, you've got your love interest um, and she's you know beautiful I mean they actually have two very beautiful women in in the film Um, but they're both kind of ineffectual and they are not used to the potential that they they could yeah, they're very, they're just not well executed. And I think the other part to that is, I just don't think the acting's <laughs> superb. Um, and I, you know, I was researching the characters because I I was very c- curious to know whether any of these characters, any of these actors had been leads in other films. And none of them had. And in fact, uh, the fellow that plays uh, Max, this was his film debut. It was early uh, film debuts or early films of many of the other um, actors. I think the the most senior actor was the fellow that played Nito. Um, <laughs> and he's only in it briefly. Um, but the... All the all the actors they're fairly new or they're just not leading actor and actress material, and it really shows in this. I I can forgive the bad acting in Italian cinema because <laughs> I, I love my Italian movies, but ninety percent of Italian cinema is kind of bad acting anyway, and and, and I mean that in in a, a loving way because 
most of the time, it's all dubbed anyway. It's more performative. I mean, you know, uh, visual performative rather than delivery performative. Because a lot of these, I mean, this is, this is 1959, so you haven't quite entered the, the realm of the Italian economic boom of the 60s. This is the very start of it. The, the Hercules film had just come out, and so very soon, like in a year or two, is when the Italian machine is really going to start cranking out genre cinema. Spaghetti western, sword and sandal films, cinefumuti, um, Euro spy films. It's about, to, this is at the very beginning. And that, and I get that. You know, you hadn't, you hadn't quite reached the stage where you're going to import American B-actors into your films yet. But you're still at the stage of you have, you know, an Italian crew with folks of other uh, language barriers all talking. And, and the solution to all that is we're just going to dub it later. And so I, I'm okay with that. But you know, on paper, though, yeah, these characters are flat. They don't do anything. And the, and the the script doesn't have them do anything. So, like our main scientist, Dr. Dr. Fielding, he, he's incompetent. He... You know, he takes the monster home and leaves it in his house with his wife and kid. Leave it in the lab. You have a lab. That's what it's there for. But no, he takes it home, and what happens? Duh, the monster escapes and tries to eat everyone. Um, he's a terrible... He's a terrible hero. At the end of the film, he, he, he's in a rush to save his wife and kid, which I get, but, you know, he tells the army, stop, 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 I gotta go in and rescue my family. And, of course, they stop because they don't want a flamethrower him. Like, no, let the army do their job because there's nothing you can really do. They're, they're the army. They're, they're there to do what the army does. Nope, what does he do? He runs in, he grabs a ladder, gets stuck in the ladder, and at the same time, what you can infer is Kaltiki's growing even bigger, and now the, the army's got to, you know, send in the tanks and stuff. You know, he didn't need to do that. He could have sat back, and his wife and kids would have been rescued. And as a side note, that latter scene makes me think of Blob 88, where there's a sewer sequence, and they're climbing up a ladder, and what happens? The, the kid gets eaten by a blob, so yes. <laughs> um... The, the the his wife Ellen is like she's really pretty but she's there really to be eye candy she's there either if a transparent top or a transparent nighty and she's either there to be chased by the blob or to be chased by Max that, that's her contribution it's it's not even like scream queen territory she's just there well she does scream but she it's... does scream but you know this this is not like in a Barbara Steele kind of way she's she's just there that's the thing the characters are this there until they're unceremoniously killed off there's there's a professor later in the film who uh you know finds out about this comet it's gonna cause radiation and what happens to him he takes off to warn the town and and he dies in a very idiotic fashion by his car going off a cliff which as a side note is recreated in the movie deep impact but why do that? You know, it's a waste of a character. Instead, have him arrive at the house. Have him either get eaten by the blob or killed by Max Gunther, which, if you do that, it, it underscores the gravity of either other monster. And so, it just this is like a, a chess game of characters, but you're playing with someone who thinks the pawn moves backwards. <laughs> you know, they're just not used right. Yeah, that's a great an great analogy because I hadn't thought about the strategy of your characters, but that's true. Um, it, at every turn, it seems that 
the characters are mishandled, misused, missed opportunities to really showcase how they can bring something to the story. And at every turn, it's a it's a missed opportunity to do something that kind of solidifies this story and, and its existence and why we should care for 76 minutes or however long the film is, um, why we should care about these characters because they're really, I think the most developed character is really uh, Linda. Linda. We, we find out that, you know, she was probably a prostitute. She, you know, um, is pulled out of, you know, some rinky-dink jail by Max for, for whatever reason. Maybe, you know, he was just feeling lonely that day. Um, but she, we find that she's in love with him. This is part of the um, melodramatic uh, love triangle uh, that we have in the story that, that defocuses what the what this story should be about um but because it's misused characters the yes. melodramatic love quadrangle Something. it doesn't work and it, the no. thing is in more capable hands with capable characters it could work yeah and i think it bears uh mentioning that uh, with this film, there was a lot of behind-the-scenes production uh, controversy that really hasn't been resolved. We still, you know, you can read on Wikipedia and read, you know, like Tim Lucas and others that, you know, who was really directing. So, you know, the acting was not great, but it could also be the result of there was a lack of a directorial focus to help really bring and deliver this film. Which should have been, like you say, Nick, it had all the elements, but the delivery wasn't there. That, that would eventually become kind of a standard thing in Italian films where one director would come in and like shoot a scene and say, screw this noise, I'm out of here, let someone else take it over. And, and sometimes that works. And I think Margherita's Castle of Blood started out that way, and that's one of his magnum opuses. Yeah, this film, I, I think the only thing you can say is... is um, Bava shot the the special effects scenes while Ricardo Freda shot all the other scenes and I guess it works but yeah more more hands in the pot sometimes you know you don't you're not getting the consistent direction to make a uniform story which th this story is not uniform um you you mentioned earlier the 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 running time in this film of what 76 minutes it, 76 minutes is a slog in this film and it shouldn't be this should be a meaty film but surprisingly there's so much filler in this film to even get it to its 70 some odd mark there's the the first half of the film is actually brilliant when when the characters are all in the jungle in the temple in the caves doing their investigations it's tense there's the the unknown factor. I mean, let's be honest, sound kind of sexual here. The movie blows its load really quick. <laughs> it does. Um, but that that the first 30 minutes of the film in the jungle scene and the temple scenes work perfectly. After that, it's it's scientist scenes which sometimes work in these types of films depending on what type of, you know, atomic horror film you're doing. But it's so much padding. There's there's this sequence where Dr. Felding is in a race to get back home to save his wife and kids. And what happens in the process? He gets pulled over by the cops and thrown in jail, and then he escapes from jail. 
that's it. The, the scene doesn't contribute anything else other than to slow him down. It, it's a false sense of tension. You could have still had the scene... Because the real tension should be... There's a monster. There's a couple monsters there. There's Gunther and then the Blob monster. That's where it should have been focused. But no, let's, let's slow him down. Put him in jail where he easily escapes and gets to point B anyway. Take it out. It's just... It, it causes... It's... It, makes you say get on with it yeah um uh, <clears throat> him driving home could have been tension enough mm -hmm. and and weaving up the hills wherever the house is could have been tension enough there was absolutely no reason to have him stopped by the cops whatsoever mm -hmm. I, i'm not quite sure um and again other than the fact that it's it's padding the pacing like you said was great in the first half um i actually really enjoyed the, the jungle sequences, I was engaged. There was a, a certain amount of tension. The, the concept of the, the natives dancing, the evil spirits, the, the disparity between classes that was going on, it, it, it worked well. And it's interesting because I think there's been a lot of criticism that the critique has been that the, the opening sequences in that first like 30 minutes is like the slow stuff. And I'm like, no, I think that actually worked well. And it's when you get into the second part where I, I, I'm, I'm afraid to say it, but it feels like you kind of get into that Lovecraft territory where you start sludging through yes. all, the, all the scientific reasons and the this and the that. And you're like, okay, can we s skip the, the, tour, the tour of the science uh, you know, lab and get on with the story? It, it feels like, you know, Mountains of Madness, where the entire second half is them translating walls and walls of reliefs to get the whole backstory in. Now, now you said earlier the movie feels unfocused. Yes. And that's because I think this movie's trying to be three different films at the same time. Uh, the first half of the film is a jungle temple uh, action-adventure type film. But then the last half is trying to be both The Blob and Quartermass, or if you're American, the other knockoff of that, First Man in a Space. It's trying to be both of those films at the same time, and it just doesn't work. You can't really have two different monsters in competition with each other because the blob gives us the blob in this case Kaltiki. it's a this this is be honest it looks like a towel <laughs> it looks like a wet towel um moving around and absorbing everyone but then you have max gunther who's been partially devoured by um Kaltiki. His arm's been devoured and he's gone insane because of it. I would like to interject that I did think that the effects with his arm was actually superbly done. What? You know, it's one of those things where the effect looked good, but afterwards I'm like, why does he even still have his arm? Shouldn't they just amputated it? Because it's seriously, it's a, it's a gooey gelatinized skeleton arm at that point. But, uh, I would have, I mean, if I was a doctor and you're like, oh my God, there's poison going into his brain and stuff. You might want to chop that arm off. That might help. <laughs> so maybe the, the doctors are not so, com I mean, none of the characters are that competent <laughs> in this film. But, you know, he's an infected monster running around just like Quartermass or First Man in a Space or uh, so on and so forth. But the thing is, is what's his ultimate fate? He gets eaten by Kaltiki. You know, Kaltiki in theory finishes the job, but I think it would have been more interesting if, if, if sort of like 
American Werewolf in London or something where, you know, uh, you get basically you turned into a monster, but you have like a linkage to your monster, maybe a psychic linkage or a cosmic linkage where now the Blob and Gunther are working in cahoots with each other. You know, I didn't devour you. Okay, now you're part of the fold. You know, we're, you know, a colony of simulated beings or something. Very slitherish, I guess. I don't know. But it, you could have done a whole bunch of other stuff with it to make the double threat a singular threat. But in this case, Gunther, he just shows up. Oh, I want to do... Let's just be honest. He wants to rape El Ellen. <laughs> I mean, they don't overtly say this because this is a 50s film, but that's what he wants to do. And, you know, she's saved by the blob eating him. So, really, he's not even a threat. He doesn't do anything. He kills a nurse, runs away, only to get eaten by Kaltiki. And I think all this time I've been talking, I keep using Blob and Kaltiki interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they... You know what I'm talking about, folks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I definitely feel that the lack of focus also came from the film trying to be a sci-fi invasion, melodramatic with the, the love triangle or love quadrangle, whatever, um, as well as like throwing in gothic elements and anything else that, that they could kind of throw in there that they like, oh, well, let's see, we saw the blob, um, you know, War of the Worlds, uh, Earth Standstills, all these sci-fi invasion films. What can we do to, you know, get this to kind of a feature film length? And um, as a result, I, it just loses its focus. It doesn't really... It doesn't do a good ripoff that you would have had great Italian ripoff films or at least fun, charming, some sort of uniqueness about it that endears it to a cult following. This doesn't. I, to, to, to go with a pun here, it's like the Italians threw spaghetti on the wall to see what would work. And nothing stuck. And, yeah. and again, I could, I, as we said a little bit earlier, I can see that where this is 59, the the boom had not quite taken off yet, because by that point, you, you had, it's called the, the Filoni phenomenon, where basically you had an Ur-text in all these films that came after it. So, you know, Goldeneye, not Goldeneye, Goldfinger comes out. What happens? You have all these Italian knockoffs of Goldfinger. Um, the Euro spy films. The, the Euro spy film. Hercules has just come out. What's going to happen? You're going to have Peplum films up the wazoo. You had um, uh, The Evil Eye, although the other time, The Girl Who Knew Too Much. You know, that happened. And, and what happens after that? The Jalo uh, boom. For this film, you didn't have a template for it. You had American sci-fi and other stuff that was kind of hodgepodgey. And I guess you're right. They threw everything in it to see what stuck. Nothing stuck. And there was a reason why, after this, you didn't really have an Italian sci-fi felony. You had Antonio Margaretti, probably the closest. He made about four Gamma Quadrilogy films, you know, like Assignment, Outer Space, and Snow Devils and stuff, but that that's it. That was just him. There wasn't, like, dozens of other directors like you had with Spaghetti Westerns and Sword and Sandal films making all this stuff. You only had Margaretti. He made those four films, and then you can argue something like, um, um, you know, this film and maybe a handful of others are part of this sci-fi, but it never took off, and I could see why, because... They just weren't good at it, I guess. Which is weird because they're so good at model special effects. Yeah, and actually, you know, that is on our probably what works, but um, and we'll get into that. The thing that I think is important about Kaltiki as as a film in film history 
is it does give us uh, a glimpse into that evolution of the Italian films, the genres, the knockoffs, and things like that. So, I mean, for that, you know, we do get insight into some of those early efforts to capitalize on other films and what what would later work this didn't we also have you know some of the early work of bava with mm-hmm. his model work so you know even though it's it's not a great film for those that are interested in studying italian films and and are curious about the evolution uh towards the successful knockoffs this is important in that regard it, it it's a good it's a good stepping stone into the you know there there's a lot of good texts in uh, italian cinema you know you're gonna have your black sabbaths your black sundays your once upon a time in the wests is this up there probably not but it's important for other reasons definitely for an early bava film because what's going to happen bava is going to become a powerhouse filmmaker uh, after this you know probably what he's learning this is going to help translate into when he does planet of the vampires Mm-hmm. You know, where he basically made Alien before Ridley Scott made Alien. <laughs> yeah. So, negative stuff aside, there is some good stuff about the film. A- aside from it being, you know, a good stepping stone that, you know, helped launch some of the Italian uh, filmmakers and, you know, really helped get the whole Italian um, uh, genre cinema off the ground. But there's some stuff the film does well. Yeah, definitely. So, um, as I mentioned in my initial thoughts, I thought the found footage technique um, of Nito and his partner, I think it's Olmar? Olmar, yeah. Um, Olmar had a camera with him, and they find um, Dr. Fielding and his group, when the team go out to the cavern, they actually find that camera. And so there's a portion where they're sitting in the tent, the, the film has been developed, and they're taking a look. And it's a real good use of found footage. It's, it's obviously an early and it's Yes, and it's an early use, probably one of the first. So it makes it very innovative uh, for the time period. I think that's really uh, well done. It not only does it, is it a, an interesting and new technique, but I also think that it gives... Nito and Omar's experience that part of the story authenticity for and and a motivating force for the rest of the the team. I I feel like if you're an audience member watching that, because you know this is back this is before. Let's review the security footage. You know, let's put the VHS tape and find out what's going on. I think it would have been a very novel thing. Now, keep my. I mean, it's technically it is a found footage thing. A lot of folks credit the Italian film Cannibal. Holocaust as like one of the first found footage films and that was 1980 I believe 7980 but you know this movie beats it by you know a cool 20 years by having its found footage scene so again Italian innovation it beats the cannibal films yeah I, di- I didn't realize that it was like 20 years because I mean actually the I you know before that you would have had like found photographs or mm-hmm. you know things like that um and this is very obvious the found footage it goes right up to the point of nito is is actually shooting his gun at uh the caltiki it, monster it's a haunting scene it's it, a, it's it, a good scene it, and it's very tense uh, 
tense filled suspenseful because obviously you don't see the monster you you only see the jiggling of the camera and stuff but it's it's very well done and it's one of the i think the best scene one of the very best scenes in the film and i think you'll find out most of our what we liked about the film occurs in the first half of the film the the jungle temple setting because again that's where all the cool stuff happens I know I really like the sequences because it's very tiki slash exotica-ish. Um, we watched the uh, Kim Newman documentary uh, that came on the Arrow DVD for this, and he even kind of points out saying that these scenes feel out of place. They feel like they should be like Caribbean voodoo films and stuff, but I I'm all for it. Uh, yeah, I think they look great, and it, it, to me it does make me think of the exotica genre of music. Um, the character of Linda, the way she looks... The way she's gussied up and, you know, she's got her eyeliner and stuff on. She looks exactly, exactly like Sandra Warner on the cover of Martin Denny's Exotica 2 album. And I think that's fantastic. Um, the other scene, the dancing scene where, you know, it's very tribal. Everyone's got these drums in the middle of the jungle pounding away. It's very primitive. Um, one, again, very exotic genre-ish, so I like that. But two, as a Italian film scholar, it, it ties into the sword and sandal films. Um, in those films, you know, again, at this time of filmmaking, the, the political ground of uh, Italy was under uh, the Christian Democrats, and they, they loved their films, but they censored a lot of stuff. You actually had to kind of go through and say, can I have this in a film, yes or no? What what that caused, though, is the directors and storytellers to be super creative. They got to be very subversive. They were able to sneak in, like, blood and sex and murder and gore, as long as, you know, at the end, people got their comeuppances or something. But in the Peplum films, you know, you're not going to show, you know, Hercules shagging a princess. <laughs> but you could show belly dancers in translucent veils trying to seduce him. And come on, when you're in a Terza Vision theater watching it on the screen, you're like, hey, 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 that's some cool stuff there. And I see the, the jungle dance scene as basically the equivalent of the sword and sandal uh, belly dancing, translucent veil, you know, showing off women's bodies scene. And you know, it's very and, sexist, but at the same time, I, I, I applaud the subversion that they're trying to do to sneak some sexuality in these films. Yeah, I mean, we see this a lot in films after this time that use those kind of scenes. Like, they almost become, you know, <laughs> okay, you've got your checklist. Okay, did we have the dance scene? Okay, <laughs> yep, check. You know, and, and even I was thinking of the Star Trek uh, original series, how you'd almost always have a native dance scene. I mean, I can think of <laughs> at least three or four from different episodes where that is a prominent feature mm -hmm. in, in an episode. Um, Star Trek is totally tiki, though. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the things that you pointed to in, in your point was um, the idea of comeuppance. And so one of the things that I think that works is the moral message. I mean, um, you know, we have uh, greed uh, as part of the message that gre being greedy doesn't pay and will lead to your demise. Um, the, the individuals that uh, find treasure... Uh, be it Nito and um, the diver that goes down mm -hmm. into the cavernous lake. Bob, I think. I think he's simply I, I, yeah, Bob. That, which is, uh, yeah, okay, Bob. Um, 
You we got have a Gunther Bob, right? and Ulmer <laughs> and Nito and Bob. Bob, yes. Um, well, you know, they, uh, what, Nito goes mad, Bob gets killed, um, Max tries to, to save the bag of jewels that, that Bob was collecting at the bottom of the, the lake, and what does he get? He gets his arm ingested by the alien, um, so you find out that, you know, greed it does not pay. It also points to the fact of where, uh, and I'm, I'm going to go on a little bit on a reach here, but it's what I've noticed in a lot of other kind of archaeological type stories. And that is you always have Western thought that they own it. And as soon as they see the, the gold and things like that, it's like, oh, we can be millionaires or billionaires, as I think Bob and, and uh, Max talk about when uh, they first learn that there are, are all these treasures. Um, they're Tomb Raiders. Yeah, they're, they're the early Tomb Raiders. And it's, it, we see that so often. It's, it's a well-used trope in a lot of those type of stories. And so the, here is an er, early use of, of that trope. I, I have the feeling, because I know what scene you're talking about. There, there's, yeah, there's a side note. Greed, especially in the first part, is super important. Every time they they hold up something gold or rich, that's when Kaltiki activates. So it almost kind of think is Kaltiki. I know she, she's going to be activated by the comet, but yeah, don't disturb my treasure. But there's a sequence where Bob comes back up from the lake. He's got some gold. And he wants to go back for more, and Doctor Fielding initially rebuffs him. He says, "No, we need to go." But Max, Max Gunther. No, it says, no, no, gold is worth the risk or something like that. It's worth the risk to get all this stuff. Even though the whole reason they're down there is not to pillage, but to find out what happened to their previous cohorts because something bad happened to them. But Max is the one, and, and of course, probably peer pressured by Bob. No, there's money to be had here. And, and Fielding yields. Now, I, I, I get the impression that this is Dr. Fielding's expedition. And that just may be just because by virtue he's the main character. But let's just say it is. He does, It's like Mountains of Madness, which we'll talk about here in a minute. He doesn't have control over his own people or his own peers. He should have put his foot down. No, leave the GD treasure. We don't know what's down here. We know there's a lot of radiation. We know we have a missing person. It's not going anywhere. If we're going to loot, we'll come back later for it. But no, just as we talked about what doesn't work in this film, he's not a good character. In this case, he's not a good leader. And... I mean, granted, they were going to die anyway because they're greedy and, you know, well, screw you, we're going to do what we want. But just another one of those scenes of greed kind of gets in the way, clouds people, and if you're not strong-willed enough, I suppose. Yeah, and it's also interesting because it's <coughs> it's a, um, what's the word, a departure. It's a, it's a rejection of science for, you know, going uh, and back down there to to take more gold from the bottom. Which is at odds with the second half of the film, which is, is all the science. Let's, let's blast the thing with gamma radiation, which we know how that turns out. Let's put yeah. it in this isotope machine. Let's study it. It is a little, I don't want to say hypocritical, but at least paradoxical. Yeah, the other th uh, point of uh, moral to the story, and it's one that... Um, Kim Newman mentions, and that is the curse of voyeurism. 
and we have that you know bob uh our bob <laughs> watches the native dancer and he has actually got a a film camera or an insta camera whatever what a perv and and yeah so he gets his comeuppance and then of course you know max is you know trying to to score with ellen and you know he's listening to ellen and john spat you know he's obviously watching her oh, even in the hospital scene he's eavesdropping yes. on everyone yep and so you know that does you no good either <laughs> Now, back to uh, what works in the film as well, in that first half, is the sets. The the jungle sets, they look good. The people are integrated in... I, I don't know if these are considered matte paintings or something else. We'll say matte paintings. I'm pretty sure if I had the Tim Lucas book on hand, he'll go into intricate detail of how they were pulled off. But, you know, the, the temple sets look good. The lighting. I, I like the gothic lighting. This, the scenes where, yeah, Nito are coming up and he's backlit is spooky as heck. Um, yeah, that's pretty good with his hand coming over uh, with the pistol and uh, then his other hand, and and it's shaking, and, yeah, it, it's really well done. And, and the lighting works for this type of black-and-white film. And as, as we talked about while watching the film, this film could not have been in color because Kaltiki as a towel monster would have looked terrible in color. you got to keep Kaltiki black-and-white or else, <laughs> I'm sorry, the effect is ruined. Yeah, and I mean, I think people would even say that the blob probably should have been in black and white because the kind of red jello kind of looks fake. Mm -hmm. um, folks, the, the towel, the texture, I mean, I think uh, Kim Newman said that, I think Bava said it was like some sort of leather material. Tripe. He said tripe a couple times. Yeah, and um, it, it has texture to it, but it obviously is... It's a towel. It, it it looks like a towel, um, and it it's much better in black and white. I, you know, I'm okay with it being a towel monster, just because you know the blob. I accept the blob is jello, you know, and I accept when it like in the scene in the blob where it leaps up on the diner, it's leaping up on a postcard of the diner. Uh, it looks fake, but it works. It ma makes me think of monolith monsters, and I love monolith monsters, but at the end of the day, I will concede the monsters and monolith monsters are just tall rocks that topple over. Uh, if, if, if I can accept tall rocks that topple over to be a menacing threat, I can accept a slimy towel being a menacing threat. And to be fair, the sequence... Any sequence that Kaltiki's actually handled by hand, like with tongs or something, looks terrible. But the sequence is when it's by itself, and there's obviously someone underneath, like the table, moving it around or whatever. When when it's when it's like in its growth spurts, yes. and when it's moving and splitting and, and slimy. Yeah, that those look good. Yeah. Um, I. One other thing, a little different, a departure for this genre of film that I think a lot of other films don't do is the military competence in this film. Usually in like atomic uh, horror films of the, of the era, especially American ones, the military sucks. They can't, it's always up to the one scientist to save the day. And as we've established, Dr. Felding is not that scientist. Um, but you think of like the original. Blob, well, the original Blob had incompetent police officers, which this movie definitely has. But like Blob 88, the military comes in, tries to control the situation. They fail miserably. In this film, the, mili the Mexican army 
it's competent. They show up with flamethrowers and flamethrowing tanks, and they actually destroy Kaltiki. Now, you know, granted, they're leveraging the, you know, intelligence that Dr. Felding provided, you know, hey, you know, kill it fire. That's about his, <laughs> that's about his only contribution to it all. But they get stuff done, which is a stark departure from other uh, atomic horror, sci-fi horror films of the era, which were... The, the military can't solve it. You gotta have Peter Graves. He'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would. I would agree. Um, I actually didn't think about the fact of the military being um, ineffectual, but when you mentioned that, I I'm thinking back to all the various films and how you seem to have the established police military force never being able to overcome the creature. It's always a civilian. So it's oh, yeah. interesting that it's the military with the guidance of the scientists through his, his scientific knowledge, air quotes, um, is able to help save the day. Well, think about it. You know, Godzilla arrives. You know, the Japanese Defense Force shows up with all their tanks and guns. He just swats them away. You know, a UFO appears in the sky. The military sends their bombers and tanks to shoot up. I'm going to reference Plan 9 from Outer Space here. You know, they're bombarding the plane, uh, the UFOs with their artillery. doesn't do a dent. So, again, it's it's... I will give the movie credit that it reverses that. Competent military... Interesting portrayal. So we're ready to talk about Lovecraft? That's why we're all here, right? This is a Lovecraft podcast. Yeah, so you, if you got this far, now you get rewarded with the Lovecraft stuff. So I guess the question is, is this a Lovecraftian film? I think it is. I think so, too. I mean, definitely there are, whether it's coincidence or not, There, we can definitely infer... Uh, Lovecraft elements. Lovecraft compatible. Yes. This is not an adaptation. If you grab the book Lurker in the Lobby, 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 uh, this book is not listed, but you know what? That this book, book, you mean um, this, this film? This film is not listed in that book, but to be fair, that book, like 80% of its content is movies like Kaltiki, where well, this isn't a Lovecraft adaptation, but this planet's very Lovecraftian, or, you know, something like that. Maybe um, they didn't know about the film. Like, I, I, the movie's from 59, <laughs> you know, but, so what, what makes this movie Lovecraft? Now, you said Call of Cthulhu. I didn't catch on Call of Cthulhu initially, so, but I agree with you, so why don't you go on, what are the Call of Cthulhu connections here? Well, um, the, the Call of Cthulhu points that I connected with was, like, the, the natives, the native rituals, um, particularly when you have the scene of the natives, you've got all the, the drum bongos and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, Which would be the equivalent of the Inspector Legrasse portion. Yes, uh -huh. uh, where you've got a voyeur that's watching this uh, taboo should not be uh, watched by Westerners or are witnessed by Westerners. And, you know, Linda in the film even tells Bob he shouldn't be there, he shouldn't be watching. Um, but he does. You, you've got um, the exotic locale. So even though Mexico isn't the South Pacific, you have the jungle, you have the... There's a mysticism about it with the ancient Mayan civilization, the disappearance. You've got the temples, you've got the... 
the column of um, the deities and it's, things like that. It's not far-fetched. So. Because there's, there's a reason why the exotica genre mm-hmm. music is compatible with tiki culture. Because exotica isn't just Polynesian and South Pacific music. It's jungle, tribal, mm-hmm. Chilean, South America... You know, uh, Africa. You know, it's all mixed together. So, yeah, you're not. Their location might as well be, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, a Rila-like island or something. Yeah, I mean, because it's not one that you typically see. And in 1959, I'm, I actually don't remember when the Aztec mummy films were. If that was in the 50s, or if that, I'm pretty sure that was in the 50s. So it, this wasn't like absolutely new territory, but. Um, it the is robot still, versus the Aztec mummy. I love it. But it is still exotic. Mm-hmm. It's an unusual locale. I also got the sense and made the connection between the the strength of mythology versus Western ideology and science. Um, we have that in this film. You've got, you know, they are looking at the mythology of Kaltiki and... You know this this female divine character, um, and they're using science to to better understand like one why did the Mayans disappear from the area that that's the big mystery, um, and they're using science particularly astronomy the 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 old Western documents you know back to you know the ninth century as a as a way to understand and legitimize. The events of the this earlier time. Um, one of the other things is that it's actually Kim New- Newman who talks about the connection between the alien monster imprisonment in the cavernous lake to that of Cthulhu, who mm-hmm. lies dormant under the the South Seas, waiting to be awakened by some massive event. And um, when we the have, stars are right, yeah. So we have that uh, with this uh, Kaltiki character um, because when this comet comes, comes uh, through again, it's like every eight or nine hundred years or something like that, um, that there's an, a heightened amount of radioactivity and that's what creates growth in this, this monster. And so those were some of the things that I got from Call of Cthulhu and Kaltiki. See, and it, it makes so much sense, but for some odd reason, when I watched this, the three times I watched this, I didn't once think of Call of Cthulhu. But it makes sense. I went the other route. I thought Mountains of Madness meets Color Out of Space. The Well, I did that too. <laughs> I had the three. Yeah. The, the first half of the film is basically Mountains of Madness. You know, instead of the uh, archaeological expedition, the Miskatonic expedition down to Antarctica, you have this expedition to the jungles in uh, Mexico, and you know, uh, you know they're uncovering what's going on. There's a, a, an alien down there, and to me, Kaltiki to me is not a, a god. Um, it's revered as a god by the Mayans back then, but I wouldn't place Kaltiki like as a DT like you would place Yogg-Sothoth or Cthulhu or Nilathrotep or whatever. To me, Kaltiki is a Shoggoth, <laughs> which is from Mountains of Madness. It's just a big, giant blob that, you know, does other stuff. Now, it's revered as a god because, let's just be honest, if you're a 
a person and you see a giant blob thing, I'd probably worship it too because I don't know what it is and it wants to eat me. So it's revered as a god. I don't buy it as a god. I buy it as a Shoggoth. And I personally, I think Kaltiki would have been better if the entire movie was basically a recreation of Mountains of Madness, but in a jungle setting. You Instead of condensing everything in that first 30 minutes, drag that to your 70-minute mark. You can have Gunther running around the caverns with a crazy arm and a blob monster here, and they're reading the walls. Oh, man, it would be brilliant. Um... So there, there you go, filmmakers. Jungle version of Mouth, uh, Mountains of Madness, and and then part two uh, is Color Out of Space. When they transition to Mexico City, Gunther, as he slowly goes insane, um, he's basically he meets the same fate as the wife, uh, the farmer character, and I just don't remember their names all of a sudden from Color Out of Space, where you know the the aliens are living in the farm well. They're contaminating the land around them, but they're also making, you know, characters go insane. And speaking of insane, the character Nito, uh, when he runs back to base camp and he's this gibbering mess of a, a man, that's a total Lovecraft character. Oh my god, this character, he saw something so horrible. Can you describe it? No, he's he's out of his wits. He's, he's crazy. He's gone mad. He's gone mad. And those are kind of the elements I pick. I thought this movie was a glorified... Mountains of Madness cross with a little bit of color out of space. And and if I could do a small little duo plug here, Miss Michelle Brittany here has a book called <laughs> um, Horror in Space, and I have an essay in there that talks about meteorite horror films, and the reason that this movie's not in that essay is because it's a comet, not a meteorite. But, you know, almost all those meteorite horror films, they're basically more or less adaptations of color out of space. And, you know, some of the, the things I observed with those films can be found in Kaltiki. You know, there's the affinity toward water. You know, Kaltiki's found in a lake. Um, there's the, the element of mass consumption. All these monsters unleashed from, uh, from a meteor, they grow big. They eat and they grow. You know, be it if you're a blob or a slither monster or a deadly spawn, you eat, you grow. And that's exactly what Kaltiki does. It eats and it grows. And then finally, of course, the monster also causes folks to go insane. Um, just like Color Space, from movies like The Curse, um, and uh, Die, Monster, Die. Uh, the same thing here. Gunther goes insane. Now, Gunther was a rotten apple to begin with, so, you know, it just pushed him a bit over the edge. But, yeah, to, to me, those are like the really hardcore Lovecraftian uh, things going on here. Yeah, um, I had put less emphasis on At the Mountains of Madness. Honestly, I... I I did go the Call of Cthulhu route. I did see a little bit of the Mountains of Madness, more from the exploration, um, the mystical, the unknown location. Um, but I was also pulling from that the the division of uh, the camp. Um, you definitely have that through, you know, the melodramatic elements uh, between the four uh, married and connected individuals. But then you also had the division of class. And I think that particularly in Gautanabi's um, adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness, he does kind of focus in on some of the class division in there as well. So we definitely have that in, in this. For The Color of Out of Space, um, I thought it was interesting that in The Color of Out, uh, Color Out of Space, 
the water organism is being ingested um, and that leads to the madness. And in the film, Max's arm is actually ingested rather than him ingesting something, um, which I thought was kind of an interesting, probably deeper analysis in there somewhere. Um, I also like the cosmic connection, and it's obvious that, you know, this alien uh, cellular, you know, came from, you know, the sky at some point and has been dormant for, you know, millions or billions of years. Um, but I was also thinking of, along with that we can make those connections with Colorado spaces, like the quartermass experiment, were, which were you know, influenced by Lovecraft. Um, in particular, where Quartermass Experiment does it very well is that we get a hero who gets infected and is slowly turning <coughs> alien. His, his, his journey is much more tragic. And you, you have a sense of empathy for the character versus Max, who's just an unlikable character from the very beginning and so there really isn't any sort of real connection with him because you wouldn't want to be him which is so weird because yeah he's for us as the audience he's terrible you know he he treats linda like crap he wants to do rapey stuff to ellen he, he wants to steal ellen from her husband but all the other characters in the film want to be his best friend. Linda it just dotes on him. I don't want to leave your sight. I love you. Dr. Fielding, I've got to find a cure for Max. I am working through the night. I'm, I'm even neglecting my wife for the fourth time because he has a tendency to do that. So I can take care of my good buddy. Everyone wants to be this guy's friend. And he just hates everyone. Hates them. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very, very odd. Um, I also thought, and I think that he's not a very likable character, but through his uh, transformation, you do grow to be, you know, uh, sympathetic towards the character. And that's Nell Bloomkamp's 2009, District 9. Um, the main character uh, played by Shapito, I can't remember his last name, but... He was in, in the A-Team. <laughs> Uh, yes, but he was also in Europa Report. So, um... Another Lovecraftian film. Another Lovecraftian film. So, um, I was thinking of that, um, and like you, I thought about The Blob, um, but more from the point of view, and I know that we've touched on it before, is that it was a good thing that it was filmed in black and white. I think it was more impactful black and white than, than trying to go a color route. Um, but those were just some of the things that, um... I thought about as far as Lovecraft um, as well as other films of that era and how they kind of connected. If anything, I would say that the the Lovecraft elements, what scant fewer there are, are, are easily tied to Lovecraft stuff, is probably one of the stronger points of this movie that makes it a nice curio to seek out. Because again, there's not too many Lovecraft adaptations out there. There's a lot of people that take a Lovecraft element and run with it, and some of them are very successful. We talked about Underwater, see prior podcast episode, <laughs> which was massively successful, or at least we thought. This one, I think it did a good job. I, I With the Lovecraft stuff, it's probably one of the more successful aspects of Kaltiki. 
And I think on that note, we'll bring our discussion to close and we'll move over to thank our opening bumper uh, person as well as discuss upcoming events. We want to thank Candace Robinson for providing the opening bumper for this episode. She is the author of Clouded by Envy and the Glass Vault Duology series. We wish Candace continued success. On upcoming events, Scholars from the Edge of Time, we will have a new episode streaming on Thursday, June 24th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And on June 29th, we'll be co-hosting Sword and Sandal Cinema podcast starting at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you don't catch us live, not a problem. The episodes will be available afterwards for download. On HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, we'll spotlight uh, two or three special guests as they discuss new or upcoming releases, as well as providing brief readings. This episode will post on Wednesday, June 30th. And in July, please mark your calendars for episode 41 of HP Lovecast that will post on Monday, July 5th. And HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, episode 11, posting on Sunday, July 18th. HP Lovecast can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course, you can also email us at hplovecast.gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books that we've either edited or contributed to. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we do have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. Thank you all very much for listening.